welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. Willie Jackson is my guest for episode 44. Willie is the founder of the Abernathy Magazine, a magazine for black men, a tech consultant, and one of the members of Seth Godin's Domino Project. He is an advisor to and has worked with several best-selling authors, entrepreneurs, consumer goods companies, and startups spanning varied industries, including fitness, travel, and law. He is a regular speaker at conferences where he addresses topics such as web performance, careers, and doing the impossible. Willie's on the show because he's worn a variety of creative hats and his current project, The Abernathy Magazine, is a new trajectory for him. He started Abernathy in part because of Ferguson and the growing Black Lives Matter movement. And let's get real. Talking about racial inequality, police brutality, and systemic injustice is hard to begin with. But because it's hard means we need to talk about it more, and our silence is tantamount to approval at this point. I'm really interested to see where this conversation goes and how Willie has managed to weave his prior body of work into this new body of work and leadership. Willie, thanks so much for joining me for the day show. Charlie, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. All righty. So your journey, I always love your journey, Willie. Um, and in case I call him Mr. P throughout the, the throughout the conversation, it's because I think Willie at some point will, will run for president. Um, but he doesn't like that, though. So we're going to we're going well, to <laughs> it's, it, it's growing on me. But uh, there are things you can't do as president that I really like doing. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that one. So, OK, um, your road has been really interesting going from college to working in a consultancy to doing a wide variety of projects with the Domino Project and Seth Godin and now Abernathy Magazine. So rather than talking about that wild journey. Actually, there's there's a point in time I do want to talk about, and then we'll get to Abernathy. So um, tell us about the jump from the consultant gig to you being Willie on his own. How'd that happen? Sure. Well, uh, as it turns out, when you have two anxiety attacks in one weekend when you've never had them before, the path forward is clear, and the path is that you quit. Um, like uh, many of my colleagues, I wanted to work for myself after I graduated from school, uh, I just had no idea what that entailed and what uh, what that looked like. I didn't actually know what skills people would pay me for, despite the fact that I have a technology degree. We'll talk about that later. Um, so like everybody else who longed to enter the rat race and have bills they despised, uh, I got a job and I bought a big house and I, uh, I entered the working world. I was on a plane twice a week, um, living out of a suitcase, and life was wonderful uh, for the first hundred or so flights. Uh, and once the newness wore off, and once the politics and bureaucracy set in, and one uh, internalized uh, this idea that, you know, when I looked around and I looked at the people who had spent 10, 15, 20 years with the company and what their lives looked like, I didn't want any of the things that they had. Like, you know, that would cost me. Uh, I mean, what you get is, you know, a low level senior executive at, at the company I was with probably was making $400,000 a year. Um, and, you know, that's not bad money, especially when you live in, in the South like I was living. And, uh, you know, so I, I thought about what it was what it would cost me, which is a lifetime of unhappiness, uh, two divorces and a partridge in a pear tree. And none of that is really, uh, you know, none of that's really appealing to me. A house and a boat and, uh, you know, 2.4 wives. That was a joke and stuff like that. I get it on my own. Um, and so I think relatively early on, there was this, um, this delta between, the track, the path, the trajectory that I was on and what I really wanted. And the real trouble um, and the source of a lot of my anxiety and frustration is that I didn't know what my options were in terms of making a living for myself as a creative professional who was also interested in technology, but wasn't passionate about it to the point where, you know, I wanted to 
go to conferences to learn the latest enterprise tool because enterprise software is bad. I'm pretty sure you have to make bad software for it to be enterprise quality. That was also a joke, um, <laughs> but it was rough. It, it, it was rough. And I reached my breaking point um, shortly before I met you in person, actually. That was that was literally the weekend before uh, liftoff retreat. I was a shattered man. I was, uh, I was probably 40 pounds heavier. I was definitely uh, very unhappy, probably depressed now that I reflect, um, you know, on, on my emotional state. And uh, things were just not good. Uh, and so I quit after uh, a particularly climactic uh, weekend of hell. So uh, I rambled on a bit. I'll let you drill down into whatever you'd like. That's fantastic. It actually wasn't. It was not fantastic. There's nothing that was fantastic about that. It was <laughs> terrible. Yeah. What I wanted to pull out is this theme of um, best way to go about this is the functional delusion that we have to live in as creative professionals. And on the one hand, here you are looking at your track as a consultant and saying, I don't want any of that. I And that's a likely path for me. And yet you choose to jump out on your own, which when we look at what seems sometimes to be the likely path for success or for, for entrepreneurs and small business, that doesn't look really good either. Right. Um, right. And so was it one of those things where like if so talk us through that, because, again, you were looking down the road and, and had the humility to see that you're not better than them and you're probably going to end up that way. Yet you still chose this crazy road. It wasn't so much humility, like, you know, I, I'll take all the credit you give me, but I didn't earn any just then. So uh, I just didn't want that life. I was groomed from uh, my sophomore year of college for corporate leadership. There's a minority internship organization called Inroads uh, that places talented minority youth in business and industry internships with the hopes that and the expectation truly, that you'll receive a full-time offer upon graduation. So my free time and my social circle and my summers in particular uh, were spent in some pr pretty intense leadership development and opportunities to, you know, further my, uh, my chances and, you know, fill out my resume. And, you know, as a young, black, aspiring professional who saw the, you know, the, the world unfolding before him, that was really exciting. And, you know, I, I meet other like ambitious and from all, all different walks of life that I was learning things from. And it was really, really exciting. It's really easy to get caught up in the idea of um, American corporate business success. The, the trouble is uh, there's a very different reality when, you know, uh, when you're inside the walls of many of these and that's where I started to have some issues, um, particularly because uh, despite the fact that I'm a technologist and an engineer, uh, I self-identify as an artist and I view the world through the lens of an artist and I perhaps have a sensitivity to uh, my emotion and my own emotional wiring and um, that really, that that's some traditional business people and technical people even, uh, or technical people especially, uh, don't share. So I have a, I have a unique perspective and um, work all this stuff out because you don't know what you don't know and you don't know how weird you are compared to other people because you can't actually uh, you, you can't actually contextualize these these things. You don't have the life experience you're 18, 19, 20 and you, you certainly aren't necessarily ready to uh, buck the system and do your own thing when you barely fi barely figured out what the thing is in the first place. Um, so it was really, really hard and a lot of really subtle and non-obvious challenges as you work through these things. Um, and, you know, zoom out a little bit. One of the things we don't do in society is talk about how incredibly hard it is to do absolutely everything. Like everything is confusing. None of us know why we're here. We're all just pretending. Right. So, you, know, you throw us all together in these institutions and, you know, we're, we're all confused and classes are stupid and older people don't understand us. And I mean, it's it's just madness. The whole thing is complete and utter madness. And then we're hurled into this world where we're paying taxes and doing all the stuff that we didn't learn in school because we don't learn many useful things in 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 college. And then we're commit for the rest of our life to a career track um, that we're not really passionate about. We're just pretending. 
So, I mean, it's just the perfect storm of madness that we have in America. And there is no real, this has changed a bit, but there's no real support system for people who want to go off script and explore different opportunities. You know, many European students have gap years where they take a year and literally travel the world. Do you know how much further along I would be in life if I spent some of my summers in the south of France and, you know, backpacking through South America? Like, I'd be a different person. But instead, we ask someone who doesn't know how to fill out their own FAFSA financial aid form uh, to decide up front what degree program they're going into and then, you know, ride that wave through until they die. And it's just madness. It, like the whole thing is just madness, Charlie. Yeah, it is madness. And, you know, I don't I, even remember what your question was. I just got angry. Yeah, no, anger is good. Emotion is good because it, it's one of those things that you're right. There's not, there's, there are kind of like these speakeasy conversations had about this, you know? Um, and after the fact, like, yeah, I fell into that hole. And then I figured out there are other people in that same hole. And it's like, why didn't I know about the hole in the first place? Why didn't somebody tell me about that? Right. Um, and so, no, it, it's, it's really good. And, and I'm going to riff on that just in case, just because not only do we, do we, you know, have trouble filling out the fast fit going on. Then once you get into school and you start figuring like, wow, I actually like art history or philosophy mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever it might be. People are like, what are you going to do with that? As if learning another degree is going to prepare you any better, right, um, for the working world. So it's kind of this double crux. You can go in there and kind of know what you want and then get shut down, or you can not know what you want and follow another path and then end up with, you know, a couple of anxiety attacks thinking, I got to do something different. That's exactly right. So you jump and um, you do a wide variety of tech projects for individuals, for teams, and then you end up at... um, um, I just forgot the name of it. It'll come back to me in a second. W3 Edge. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that, how did you slide into that position? Well, uh, let's see, let's see. Uh, so I worked for Accenture from 2007 to 2010. I left in April, 2010, uh, going back to 2005, uh, for a class project, we were tasked with building an interactive resume. Uh, my degree is in information technology, and our capstone course was to build uh, essentially a personal website that marketed our skills uh, ostensibly to employers. And something about that project really clicked with me. I, I saw the power of being able to tell your own story on your own terms on your own site. Uh, boy, oh boy, uh, what a foreshadowing that was. And uh, I, I really ran with it, and I enjoyed the project, and you know, I threw together a terrible website. Um, that I used um, from a free HTML and CSS template site. And, and it was really cool. And I, I, but I really kept working. I, I really kept um, uh, ruminating over this idea that you could uh, tell your story better than a resume. And I, and I did that. And so I was, uh, I think I was, pro- I, don't, I don't know that I was necessarily smarter than any of my colleagues. Uh, many of them had a lot of work experience and came back to school because, you know, the economy changed and, and you know, how that goes. So um, I wouldn't say that I was more, ex- I definitely wasn't more experienced. I don't necessarily know that I was smarter, uh, but I could, I could certainly talk a mean game better than uh, all of them. And I translated that to the web and, I, you know, it, it, resumes are terrible. I, there, there, you know, there's nothing, <laughs> there are a few things more oppressive than the thought of distilling your uniqueness into a uniform piece of paper that encapsulates all of your um, experience. It's just, uh, it's just asinine to me. So I use the website as a, play, as a way to uh, lure someone into my world and to tell them what I actually wanted to say. Uh, and it worked. So when I graduated, I had my pick of uh, opportunities. So anyway, uh, I, I say that to say when I quit my job uh, in 2010, I had experience freelancing and building websites and I was able to make a living doing that. I was living in Atlanta at the time. And despite the fact that I bought a 3,600 square foot house, like all stupid 22 year olds, um, cost of living 
in the South is you know pretty low. Um, and so that's what I did. I ramped up my freelance web design business and um, and that was that. And things were going well. I was doing some coaching or some speaking rather, a little part-time teaching. Uh, I had freelance clients and things were going well. Uh, and December of 2010 is when I found out about the Dom project. I applied for that and I was hired. So I moved to New York City in 2011 uh, to work with Seth Godin and five other um, amazing people. And we made books for six months. Um, towards the end of that six months, I reached out to my now former business partner, uh, who was the um, uh, founder of a digital agency based out of Boston. He had been a mentor from afar uh, for a little while. And I just asked him, you know, if he wanted uh, he wanted to work together. I told him I was about to be a free agent again. And the rest is history. The rest is history. And so um, you've got the Domino Project. You're, you're carrying, you know, you've got W3 Edge and you're doing stuff with that. And then, um, you know, from my perspective, sort of watching, watching as you go, like you could have coasted with W3 Edge and just sort of, you know, the, the random, varied and amazing projects that you do. Um, just fine. What was the impetus to get you to start Abernathy? Well, we got to back up a little bit because the assumption that everything was peaches and cream during you know my time at W3 Edge is uh, it should be examined. Um, I was the uh, first line of defense um, for a business that had you know, almost a million active customers, you know, using the, the product. Not all of them were paid customers, <clears throat> but they were certainly using our product and occasionally asked for support. And I ran that. Um, it was an enormous, uh, enormous task. And one of the things that I failed to do when I started the role, because, you know, it was a role created for me just out of necessity because uh, the business needed it. But I didn't put documentation and processes in place um, that would have allowed me to scale my department uh, much more elegantly. Uh, meaning, uh, when I did break down and hire some help, um, I mean, you know, it's, it's like the house was on fire as I was, you know, trying to rescue myself and rescue everybody else. It was just, it was, uh, I'm not sure if I can say shit show, but it was a total shit show. And it was rough. It was really, it was really, really rough. So I had a really hard time because at that point, you know, three years into it, two and a half years into it, two years into it, uh, you know, business had been steadily increasing and uh, technology changes and there's just so many um, fascinating things that you learn when someone pays you a little bit of money over the internet. The expectations that they come with, the language barriers, I mean, so many things that somebody about yesterday, how my almost four years in the fire supporting customers uh, in this technology work has truly prepared me to do virtually uh, virtually anything that I can think of um, because I don't seat my emotions in a place that makes them susceptible to public criticism and feedback because, I mean, you could dig up posts uh, in WordPress forums, you know, people dragging my name through the mud over $100 and some emails where I didn't get back to them, you know, fast, as fast as they'd like. Uh, and all sorts of unreasonable madness. So it really reset my expectations around um, what to expect from humans uh, in general. And once you realize that a lot of people are really, really um, stupid, then, you know, you can just focus on the people who are awesome. And it, that perspective has been so useful. Um, even as I've, I've, you know, been a fly on the wall as certain projects were launched or offered some perspective uh, for my friends who are just wading into the world of startup and customer support and um, uh, just putting projects in the world that touch people that might not fail or that might not work and that, uh, publicly. So uh, I'm really grateful for uh, a staggering number of lessons that I learned going through the belly of the beast. But I, I must... I, I must uh, inform you that everything was not wonderful. That was a that was a whole lot of hell. Well, I wasn't. I didn't impl mean to imply that everything was wonderful, um, but more that you had you had opportunities within W three Edge to keep doing and growing within Certainly. that seat, right? Certainly. 
Um, it, what's interesting, Willie, and, and you know, you, you know this because of the work you do and, and the people that we talk to, is that for just about any creative giant out there doing stuff, there's on the outside, it looks like it's either easy or it looks like it's peaches and it looks like, you know, oh, everything is great. But when you really dig behind the work, there's just a whole one. There's a whole lot of work. There's a whole lot of emotional processing that's going on. And sometimes, you know, it's just a shit show happening behind the scene because at a certain point, we're all making this stuff up as we go along, you know? And so, um, thanks for pulling that out. Cause I, I think that's sometimes lost. Like, Oh, you've got a best selling book going on, but they don't understand that. Like before they, before the day of, or on the day of that, that book launch, like there's some serious stuff happening on the personal side and they've got to figure out how to show up at the same time. You know? Well, we, we glamorize a lot of the, the external markers of success without realizing that a lot of the internet famous people are looking for employment. Right. And then like a lot of authors fail to earn back their advance. Most authors fail to earn back their advance. So it's really easy to get caught up in uh, a look of success. And I think that's really tied to the fact that a lot of people really hate their lives and their and their jobs. And we, we're just dishonest with us. I keep going back to this notion and in, in my personal reflections, uh, this seems to be. <clears throat> one of the ideas that's at the core of why our culture is so sick. Um, I'm not sure if this is supposed to be a reality conversation or a, an uplifting conversation, but this is all I've got, Charlie. Um, but <laughs> it's what it is. I mean, we, you know, we we don't take the time to really connect with each other as humans and acknowledge. And, and I keep coming back to the acknowledgement component because knowing that your struggle and your journey is shared other humans who are equally confused and terrified is so liberating and because we don't have the courage to admit to ourselves that things are really freaking hard and ask other people like hey i know you seem okay but does everything kind of suck for you too because this shit is really tough like if we had more conversations like that i think we'd be fine i certainly wouldn't need to uh well i'm not gonna make a drug reference here but the point is uh, it's uh it's important that we acknowledge how hard it is just to get up in the morning and get through the day. And because we don't do that, because we pretend like everything is so great and we, you know, retweet uh, Leo Bavada quotes and like, you know, just do all this social media madness. We get caught up in the lie. And when we make a habit of lying to ourselves about how things are going and we perpetuate the motions and the actions and the activities of people who have their shit together, um, then we're never like we never create a space for ourselves to be honest with ourselves because we've created a reputation and expectation. So one day we pop up and say, oh, hey, guys, I'm getting a divorce. And you're like, what are you talking about? I thought everything was great. Um, and that's because there's a fundamental honesty that is lacking in how we relate to each other. And, you know, you have to ask somebody far smarter than me to, to break down why this happens. Um, I suspect their influences in mass media. I suspect a lot of it is personal. A lot of it has to do with uh, terrible people in corporate America. Um, but really, it comes down to personal responsibility because you can choose to opt out of the whole system. And that's what I've done. So, yeah, you could choose to opt out of the whole system. What I'll add there is... Um, we're really talking not necessarily um i'll i'll phrase it this way life is a mixture of hard shit and good shit mm -hmm. right and if when we only focus on the good shit um and we only focus on the good stuff then we um forget this other critical component that's part of our day-to-day -day reality but also part of the fuel that lets us get to the good stuff so that's what we're talking about yeah um so you had the you had these fires going on um nw3 edge um so on and so forth and again you you could have spent years just kind of working on building that but you didn't um what was the impetus for abernathy uh a turning point for me was mike brown's death um for you know people not tuned in or who have been living under rock or perhaps listening in a different country um there's an eight-year-old black boy, a uh, young man outside of St. Louis, Missouri, in a city called Ferguson last August, uh, who was killed um, by a police officer. And the circumstances around the death um, are tragic. And um, his 
what's for the most poignant and recent, not recent now, but uh, encapsulations of race relations in the United States. Um, and it, it's complex and it's ugly and uh, many people feel like justice was not served. <clears throat> uh, the tragedy of the event aside, uh, because you know Michael Brown was supposed to start big slaughter, um, and instead, you know, his parents buried him. Um, the tragedy of the situation aside, what really uh, what really rocked me was one the ensuing media coverage. Um, got a little noise in the background it'll be over in a second uh, what really rocked me was not only the media coverage which um there, there's a saying among the uh protest movement if you will that um if you're if you're a black person and you are uh killed at the hands of um law enforcement for example uh you die twice you die once naturally and you die in, again in the media so what you see is a character assassination that um, attacks the person's humanity and subtly and sometimes not so subtly implied that this person had it coming and that they deserved it. Uh, and that's really for me to wrestle with. Um, additionally, technology has reached the point where mobile devices are all capable of capturing and streaming high definition video. Um, so as I'm sitting in my apartment in Jacksonville, Florida, um, glued my TV screen, uh, watching, uh, law enforcement officials pointing rifles at unarmed members of the press and citizen journalists who flew in to cover the happenings as, uh, you know, as this, as the city rolled tanks down the street and tear gassed people, at, citizens, U.S. citizens. Uh, unarmed, nonviolent U.S. citizens. Um, and as I saw protesters in Gaza showing people over social media in Ferguson during these uprisings and the protests how to make makeshift gas masks to protect themselves against uh, state-sanctioned violence, uh, it, it was a really, really, really significant turning point um, as it relates to my humanity and my perception of the world. Um, I'm a 30-year-old black man in America, and I grew up privileged. I grew up fortunate. I went to, um, I went to you know, good schools, and I was sheltered from a lot, of the <clears throat> a lot of the influences that could have had me caught up in um, the wrong path. Um, and it, it's just amazing when you re reflect on the progress. My grandfather... Um, had hazel eyes, paper bag skin, and was a sharecropper. And, uh, and he looked the way he did, not because my people are from the Caribbean, but because my antecedents were raped. Um, and a sharecropper is as close as it gets to slavery. Um, my father was born in 1944 and picked cotton in the segregated South. Um, so what we see in two generations is you know, the, the American dream, ostensibly. But I also have to wrestle with this reality that the color of my skin has been weaponized by the media. And because America has never truly acknowledged uh, its violent, racist, colonialist, imperialist history, uh, which really does encapsulate uh, America, and it's, these aren't like, you know, subtext of the American dream. This is literally how America came to be. Because they acknowledge that, like many parts of Europe uh, and other parts of the world, um, there is a fascinating dynamic that exists when you talk about race. It's virtually impossible um, because a, there's this perception that you're only racist if you're calling someone the N-word. Um, but, but, you know, as we know, institutional racism is far, far more sinister. Um, so the turning point for me was Michael Brown seeing uh, the media's impact on um, how these stories are told and how that affects things. I can't walk around in New York like <clears throat> Mark Zuckerberg can because of this. Right? It's, it's different. It, it is just different and no one can argue otherwise because there are facts and statistics that prove this out. Um, and I wanted to do something about this in a way that didn't involve shotguns and ski masks. Uh, and so I reached out to Seth, my now advisor, <clears throat> um, 
Seth Godin is an 18-time best-selling author. Uh, Seth invented commercial email back in the 90s and sold a company uh, called Yoyodyne to Yahoo uh, for 30 million a long time ago. Seth probably hasn't needed to work for a long time, but he's had uh, an incredible career, um, lasting more than 30 years, and he's uh, written more books than any of us ever will, and he's given more talks than any of us ever will, and he tries really, really hard to. Um, separate from having worked with him um, and admiring his business savvy, uh, Seth is a really decent person. Uh, he's a good father and a good husband to boot. Uh, and I'm just glad that we're friends. So anyway, I reached out to Seth because we still have a good relationship. And I asked him if he had anything coming down the pipeline that might benefit from my expertise because I was looking to make some changes. I was incredibly uh, unhappy with the work that I was doing. And I didn't feel like I was making a change in the world. Plus, there was this whole... Um, uh, uneasiness that I felt around the things that I just described and, and, and what could be done about them. And we chatted for a bit and I told him what was bothering me, what I, what I just shared with you. Uh, and we talked about what working together might look like because it, as it turns out, Seth did have some projects that needed a technologist, uh, kind of an in-house CTO, if you will. And so I flew to New York the next day and we, we talked about it in a bit more detail. And everything sounded good. Uh, so he gave me some homework uh, and I came back to Jacksonville and I was writing on my walls like a crazy person. I wrote a blog post about that. I'll send it in the link. Uh, I'll, I'll send it to you if you want to include it. Um, but I, I really got crazy. And, you know, I, I, I was thinking about my next steps. And there was like a, a, a palpable um, energy in the air. And, uh, and uh, I mean, things kind of happened really quickly after that. I moved back to New York City uh, on February 1st, uh, and I launched Abernathy uh, in earnest on January 29th. Um, so things got to moving in a hurry. Yeah. Um, being around Seth has that happen. Like, he, he's really good about making things happen in a hurry within people. It's true. Um, I think Seth, I, I forget which episode, I think he's episode three of the Creative Giant show. So if you're, if you're interested in learning more about Seth and his perspective, I agree. Like, you know, as, as my mentor from afar, it's one of those things where we know a lot about his um, business career, but he's also just a really, he's a really good guy. He's a mensch of the highest degree. Um, so what I'll say is Ferguson and the, and the, issues that follow really open up a, a conversational vein for a lot of people, right? Not just um, African-Americans, not just people who identified as people as color. It um, really did um, change the conversation. And I think, you know, with where we are right now, today is July the 24th with the Confederate flags coming down, the, bo the bombing of, or the you know, the killings in churches, like all of this is a part of the context in which Abernathy exists. And, um, so yeah, it's it's really important to talk about that. But there's this challenge because Abernathy is a magazine for black men, right? That's right. Um, not inclusive of, well, it's not um, fundamentally exclusive of other people, right? You, you don't have to just be a black man to read Abernathy, but it focuses on issues for specifically black men. That can be a challenge, you know, let's talk about that. Um, have you gotten any, um, what, what have the reactions been to that focus of Abernathy? Uh, well, for better, or for worse, uh, Abernathy has become more relevant and more important since we launched in January. Um, and we've been met with overwhelmingly positive support. Uh, the wonderful thing about digital shelf space is that no one has to lose in order for you to win. And anyone who has something negative to say about um, me creating a publication that is uh, doing something good for an overlooked, uh, an extraordinarily underserved demographic um, probably won't be very happy with how the conversation goes uh, with me. Uh, because the fact that in 2015 there aren't a uh, hundred magazines like this uh, is a travesty. Like, why on earth does that not exist? Am I in 2015 a person with the magazine for black men? Do you know of any others? Have you heard of any others? 
uh, I sure have, and then we looked around, and we 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 still look, um, you know, for other people doing what we're doing, and I just don't see it. So, as a businessman, tremendous opportunity. As a black man, absolute travesty. So, uh, in my mind, I see this filling uh, a much needed void, and so this notion that I mean, it's, it's certainly scary uh, to target a a very very small. This is for you, but if you actually look at how business works uh, and how important it is uh, and how valuable it can be. Uh, to draw your line into the sand and says this is for these people and these people um there's power in that and you know i'm, I'm making it clear in the language and the messaging of the site this is for black men period um but everybody's welcome to join the ride there are a lot of things not taught in schools you know american history books are devoid of actual american history like black slave labor built this country the highest concentration of multimillionaires were in Mississippi, um, and through some of the most incredibly violent and oppressive circumstances you could ever imagine. If you really want to have a bad day, uh, read a book called Worse Than Slavery. There's something called, um, uh, one second please. There's something called, um, I, I totally, totally spaced out, totally spaced out. Um, the, the point is, uh, there's a lot that's not taught in schools, and there's, there's a lot that we don't talk about in society, and there's a lot that's not acknowledged. And one of the uh, one of the things that we have to create a space for, one of the things that I am passionate about creating a space for, is putting some dialogue around this stuff. And I, I think that there is um, uh, there are a lot of uncomfortable conversations that need to be had, and a lot of things that uh, oppressed people in this country carry around with them. And I think that can be channeled into something uh, positive. And that's what we're trying to do with Abernathy. Yeah. Um, obviously, I have some dog in the fight here as a multiracial person of color, right? Um, and so um, it, it's one of those things with, with a um, black heritage, with a native heritage, and also an Irish heritage. It's, it's one of those things where it gives me a somewhat... Hmm, interesting position in the sense that in many ways um, I'm not clearly identified as black in some places, right? Um, if I go to the South, you're straight up black, right? That, there's just no real multiracial there. Um, everywhere else, it's okay. But, you know, when I'm talking to people about these issues, what I sense, Willie, is that there's this broad group of people that are in the middle of this conversation and just don't know how to talk about it. Um, and there, there are a lot of white women who want to talk about, um, issues of race, but just don't know what's, what's legit and what's not legit. And if they bring it up, like, how's that going to do so on and so forth. And so, you know, one of the reasons that I, you know, I see the need for Abernathy and other magazines like that is because it is that place where these difficult, uncomfortable, honest conversations can be had. Um, and it's a place where, um, the frustration and anger and things that are natural part of the, the history can show up, but there's also a place for optimism and there's a place for learning. And again, like you mentioned there, there's not as much, there's really not as much out there about um, some of the dark sides of American history as, as, as we would like, you know, well, a lot of it's out there. It's just not in a place that's convenient for us. And, you know, one of the things that I grapple with in having these conversations with a lot of my, uh, you know, my white colleagues who privately message me about, you know, their horror and their frustration and their um, desire to see things changed is that uh, the sentiment is is really uh, it really boils down to uh, this notion that uh, people dying um, because more than 520 or 30 some odd people this year in the United States uh, have been killed by police. Um, th this is a crisis. Like, this is an actual crisis. If any country uh, brutalized its citizens with the frequency that our law enforcement officials brutalize U.S. citizens, 
the U.S. Department of Defense would advise advise against visiting that place. Uh, and it's really it's really hard to contextualize this, um, but things are frighteningly bad. Uh, I think there was a study or, or something mentioned by um, uh, legendary statistician, I don't know his official title, Nate Silver, who uh, did some really like eerily accurate predictions around um, the last presidential election, um, talking about how African-Americans would have a better chance of not dying or essentially would be better off in Rwanda. Uh, than they were in the United States uh, because of some of these, you know, police brutality rates in particular. We've lost an entire generation of black men to mass incarceration um, through laws uh, and legislation passed by President Clinton. Um, and so you're seeing some interesting discussions around uh, the three strikes laws and things like that um, as Hillary Clinton uh, campaigns for the White House. And he's having to acknowledge the fact that he was responsible for a lot of these things um, that have created a, a pipeline of black bodies going into prison. And so we, we truly have a crisis here. And I, I'm not sure the general population understands how dire it is. Uh, and so I have increasingly little empathy for people unwilling to have conversation or a rough day at the office um, when my people are dying. I have very, very, very little empathy empathy um, for that perspective because I, I think it's worth speaking up. I think it's worth speaking up. I have more sympathy or empathy depending upon which way you want to go because there's, there's this thing like what do we do about it, Willie? I think you start asking and you don't stop until you figure it out because if you lost your job, you wouldn't quietly wonder to yourself what to do. If somebody in your family was a victim to this brutality, you wouldn't quietly wonder what to do. You would raise hell. You would absolutely raise hell. So it's easy to say, uh, yeah, that's pretty tough. How do I even start there? Because it doesn't actually affect your life. But when it does actually affect your life, things change in a hurry. You know, the the case in the news, uh, well, there, you know, I'm going to get really angry if I keep going down this path and you're about to say something so please no um keep keep going so there's an there's an issue uh, a case in the news right now a woman named sandra bland uh was driving to her new job um and she had the misfortune of being pulled over uh by a cop who made a u-turn uh we still don't know why he pulled her over um and so she was illegally stopped and the, I haven't brought myself to watch the video because I, I just I have to be protective of my spirit these days. But things escalate uh, when she refuses to put out her cigarette. Um, she's allowed to smoke a cigarette in her car for people who aren't familiar with U.S. law. And uh, she was ordered out of her vehicle and things got really bad in a hurry. Long story short, she died three days later. The story officially is that she committed suicide. Um, but none of these things are adding up. And what we're actually dealing with here, and there was another woman uh, who mysteriously took her life uh, in, in prison uh, a day or two later. What we're looking at here is two cases of black women being lynched in 2015. Um, and that's really, 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 really frightening uh, to not acknowledge this. Because when you look at the, uh, the, the coverage and you look at the narrative, uh, you see all of the markers um, that put Michael Brown to death twice and, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of others. There's the character assassination. Possibly she smuggled marijuana into prison. I mean, more of this or more of that. And um, it's it's really uh, it's really hard to maintain a, a cool head when you see this systematic um, disenfranchisement and oppression and violence repeat itself ad nauseum. Uh, with no end in sight. And then you start to uncover the history of the corruption um, and the history of these towns and the police departments and things like that. Uh, everyone is complicit. The whole damn system is guilty. And it's really, really hard for me to have empathy um, for people unwilling to have uncomfortable conversations. That seems to be very little to ask. Yeah, and I want to be clear here that... Um Abernathy is not necessarily the platform where um, 
this particular conversation is like, that's not all that Abernathy is about. So if you haven't checked it out yet, um, much broader conversations and just, just, but this is part of the undercurrent. This is part of the, the need for a, a group of people to talk about this, a group of our people to talk about this. Right. Uh, yeah. What, what's, what's coming through right now is, uh, the spirit of a black man who is proud and who is angry and who is passionate and who wants to see a better world. And yeah. I'm ready for us to get along with it, get on with it. Um, Abernathy, you know, the companies sponsoring Abernathy are Basecamp, MailChimp, uh, the YEC. Like, yeah, Abernathy's kid-friendly. Yeah. Right? The, the, you're not going to go there and, and get scared. Yeah. Like, you're not going to go there and be like, oh, this isn't for me. I mean, you might. That's fine. Uh, it probably means I'm doing my job. But, you know, it, it's... Uh, a, what you're hearing is is a bit different from the the spirit and the tone of the publication. Yeah. Um, um, and I'm loving what what I'm hearing too because again, this is part of the conversation. This is part of the frustration. If you're um, if you happen not to be a black person or person of color and happen not to, if you sense that frustration again, imagine that we had a um, a, a a known disease that killed one out of five hundred children. Um, you know, and we knew it was there, but we just didn't want to talk about it. We didn't want to research it. When we look at cancer rates and how many that affects, when we look at the issues, which either the media cares about or that comes to our mind and what we get sad about, um, and we compare it to this particular systemic, um, pattern of behavior against blacks and so on, like, that's where that frustration is coming out because it's like, Hey guys, like, you know, what, what came to me really is it reminded me of um, when you were talking about being safer in Rwanda and things like that. It, it reminded me of about 10 years ago when I was standing in a desert doing, you know, wearing a green suit. And I'm like, we're working harder to establish democracy and fairness here in Iraq than we are at home. There you go. You know, there's something fundamentally like, why am I here and not, back home trying to do these same things, trying to give Americans, you know, health insurance, trying to give Americans um, a, a full right to vote, trying to give Americans equal opportunity to, regardless of their religious status. Like it, it seemed really lopsided to me at the time still does. Right. Still does. Um, so what have you learned um, from launching and growing Abernathy? Oh boy. Um, yeah. One of the things that, I mean, this has been a really, really, uh, a really good week. And one of the things I was mentioning to Seth, um, that we were talking about is it's really not hard to see a little bit of success. Um, we spend most of our lives talking ourselves out, giving our dreams a shot. Uh, when you actually try and like when you, like when you actually, actually try, um, magic happens, you know, especially if uh, your cause is worthwhile and if you are serious about what you're doing and you put everything you've got in the direction of your dreams and, you know, if you happen to have a Seth Godin on your team, helping heaven help you if you happen to have an Ernest White on your team, that's my editor, um, you know, Things can really come together in a hurry. Um, so my technology background helped me move pretty quickly on this. Um, sorry. Uh, and I mean, I, I just see things coming together overnight. So um, there's something magical, uh, for lack of a better f- term, um, to trying and, and to take. Um, and there's just richness uh, to life that opens up when you start actually trying because your ideas have momentum and then you see this idea turn into a thing and then you put the thing out and you refine the vision and you, you know, people reflect back how they're dealing with it. And I mean, I'm, uh, it's, it's really hard to distill the lessons into words because a lot of it's really subtle, a, a little, uh, a lot of really here in New York City to celebrate the launch. I had 10 speakers giving five-minute talks about the spirit of the publication. Uh, and, you know, my friends come from every walk of life, every color of the rainbow. Um, so it was a wonderful event. If you go to abernathymagazine.com slash launch, you can see a recap. 
and the pictures and uh, a summary of how things went. That was truly one of the proudest moments of my life. Um, I didn't even speak at the event. I mean, I, I said a few words at the end, but um, and, and to your previous point, um, a couple of the white women in attendance, they thanked me profusely for inviting them because nobody asks them uh, you know, to, to attend events like that. And we had some really, really powerful conversations and it was just a wonderful environment and, and it was such a great testament to what's possible uh, when you try. Uh, because these, there were what, 50 or 60 people who took time out of their Friday evening. Um, several of the speakers who came from out of town on their own dime uh, to speak at this event, uh, you know, pouring their hearts out for five minutes and, uh, you know, standing up in front of people in a way that might fail. Uh, and they believed in this idea and they believed in me and they believed in Abernathy enough and say, sure, I'll do that. Um, and a, a lifetime of happiness, uh, a lifetime of positive memories um, stem from doing things like that. And I still get messages saying, you know, when is the next live event? When is the next live event? And having done that um, shows me how easy it is to continue doing things. And so the next event I want to do has to be, you know, it, it's going to be even bigger. It's going to be better. It's going to be uh it's just going to it's it's going to be great um, because I've already done the impossible thing, which is taking an idea from the ether, putting the world and doing it with love and care. Trying um, really, really hard to make something that benefits the people that it touches. Um, so I, I don't have cute bullet points for this. I'm happy to respond to any question that you have specifically. But um, I've, I've learned more than I could ever, uh, ever, ever explain. No, no bullet points needed. That's why we're talking. Um, all right. So um, if people remember nothing else about you and your body of work from this episode, what would you want that one takeaway to be? Uh, let the record show that I tried. Uh, I tried. Uh, I tried hard. And, um, and I, I, I care a lot about people being touched by this. And you know, Abernathy is a publication for black men. Uh, but everybody's welcome because the metaphor of empathy and tolerance and understanding uh, is something that we all benefit from. Um, so let the record show that uh, I gave it my all and that I will continue uh, giving it my all because regardless of whether or not you win, life is sure better when you're fighting like hell for what you believe in. That's fantastic. Thanks so much for joining me today, Willie. Thanks for having me, Charlie. All right, Creative Giants, you heard it from Willie Jackson, Mr. P. What are you holding back on that you need to, you know, try today to do the impossible of taking that idea and turning it into a project and, and putting it out there in the world with love, care, respect, but also tenacity? We need that thing. And I hope you take the steps to do that. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.